Today, I'd like you to turn with me to the 23rd chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Pastor Connie continues our discussion of selfies and specifically how we become fake to ourselves, to others, and even to God. Let's listen together. I was in a hotel ballroom in Beverly Hills, which was thronged with potential donors. I had never seen so much Botox in my life. And I was there <clears throat> in my capacity as a member of the Dean's Advisory Council of Fuller Theological Seminaries School of Intercultural Studies. Now there are a lot of capital letters in that sentence that describe how very important I was in that setting. Here is me. This is me, Dr. Connie Larson Devon, in my doctoral robes with my doctoral hat, thinking doctoral thoughts in my doctoral library, <laughs> a proper VIP. And uh, we, the advisory members, were supposed to talk with and mingle and socialize, making the guests comfortable and making them feel very expansive and generous. And I happened to be standing with Jana McConnell, the wife of the dean, uh, Doug McConnell, and she's a very down-to-earth pe person with not a whole lot of capital letters and any sentence describing her. And two people came up to us, they said, you know, we have a question and we're wondering if you know the answer. And at the same time, Jana said, oh, I don't know very much, but ask me anyway. And the words coming out of my mouth was, oh, I know everything, ask me. <laughs> So then they asked a question, which of course, Jana knew the answer to and I knew nothing about. Have you ever taken a fake selfie of yourself? Has it ever happened to you that you feign knowledge, experience, understanding, social position, confidence, all the while knowing you're in over your head? Have you ever pretended to be something that you are not? Today we're going to look at some of the severest words that came out of Jesus' mouth. And we might even wonder, is this Jesus talking? It's more than a little harsh, and it's directed at fake people. Digital cameras make it really easy to take a fake selfie. I actually borrowed all of my dad's authentic doctoral things to pretend that they were mine. But in Jesus' day, even without technology, it was a problem big enough for Jesus to speak to. We're in a sermon series entitled Sermons from Selfies, in which we are looking at the phenomenon of selfies to see what it says about our world and what scripture can be brought to bear. And today we're looking at fake selfies. And in one sense, all selfies are a little disingenuous in that they are curated to, by their creators to put uh, themselves in a certain light. But this is not what we're talking about today. Today we're talking about deliberate attempts to deceive and harm others. The fake selfie that is knowingly produced for the purpose of taking advantage of someone else. And we're in Matthew chapter 23. This chapter has been called the most unchristian chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. So prepare yourself to read the harshest words of judgment that Jesus spoke. But notice, just off the top of the bat, that, uh, that it is not judgment against sinners, those people who knowingly were disobeying God's command. 
Sinners are such an easy target. Their failures are so obvious. You just pick a commandment or two. There's so many, just pick a commandment. We have a lot of ammunition against sinners. But Jesus had a soft spot for sinners. He loved them. He came to lead them to repentance and new life. He never called them names. Spoiler alert, Jesus is going to curse someone in our passage. It's just not going to be sinners. So we're in Matthew 23, verse 1. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. So before we go any further, verse 1 tells us that Jesus is not speaking directly to the Pharisees, but to the disciples and the crowd as a warning to them. And as we absorb this chapter, we can put ourselves in one of three camps. Are we the crowds, the people who are listening in, but who have not yet committed themselves to Jesus? Are we the disciples who are already following Jesus? Or are we the Pharisees and scribes, religious people who are comfortable with the rules, who enforce the expected behavior that comes with religion? And even though this chapter will be a lot about Pharisees, it's really not about them. It's about us, the church. Surprisingly, Jesus begins softly. The scribes were formerly trained in the law of God. Thinking of them as lawyers gets us into the right mindset. The Pharisees, on the other hand, were the enforcers. They were the behavior police. They directed people in the practice of religion. Do as they teach, Jesus says. But from then on, from the middle of verse 3 on to the whole end of the chapter, nothing else good is said about these religious leaders. So continuing in verse 3, but do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they preach, what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. Ah, fake people saying one thing, presenting themselves as one thing, but doing something else. So just think about the heavy, heavy demands of the law. Think of all the commandments. Think of the discipline, the stamina, the marathon, which is to follow God. Now, the Pharisees had added multiplicity of extra requirements. They applied priestly purity rules to common people as a whole. They replaced God's law with human tradition. They created an intolerable burden for ordinary people. And against this backdrop, think of Jesus' words. Think of his requirement for his followers to carry his yoke and yes, yoke, a yoke is a burden that is placed on our necks. But listen to his invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and are carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, those words are life-giving words when you are weary and tired. And some of you, that's just all you need to listen to in this sermon today, because that's where you're at. It's not that Jesus' demands are less stringent, but they are oriented in a different 
direction toward himself at the center as a yoke bearer himself who has bound himself to us in a double yoke in order for him to carry the heavier burden. So do you feel the difference between those two burdens? One is oppression and the other is salvation. Verse 5 in Matthew 23, they do all their deeds to be seen by others for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. Phylacteries are those boxes that contain portions of God's law that the Israelites were to strap on their foreheads or their arms when they prayed. And likewise, the Israelites were to wear fringes on the four corners of their garments so as to remind themselves of God's command and not follow, as, as uh, Numbers says, the lust of their own hearts and of their own eyes. Well, the Pharisees had made theirs extra long and extra visible, not because they needed extra help against temptation, not to remember God, but to make an impression upon others, to be visibly religious. This is a fake selfie. This is theatrical living. Verse 6, they love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seats in the synagogue and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Now this year, for the last year and a half or so, this teaching of Jesus has just leapt out to me in bold. I've come across it in devotions. I've come across it in sermon preparation. And the... Greatest shall be least and vice versa. This is an anti-social order, anti-power teaching that has leaped out to me. It's just everywhere in the Gospels. And I'm convinced that it's fundamental to Jesus' teaching. And yet, have we in the church done a good job of wrapping our minds around it? We don't know how society is supposed to work if people in power become servants. Or more importantly, how the church is supposed to work if this was implemented. Christians talk a lot about servant leadership. But how much have we seen it actually practiced? Or do we measure ourselves by this standard? Our brothers and sisters, our leaders by this standard? Or do we talk about it and then measure them by the world's success standards? I really struggled to put into words what people, what Jesus means because it's so different than the way our world works. It's almost like it's always in the periphery. And when I look, try to, you know, focus in on it, it just is back in the periphery again that I can't get a good handle on it. But I know it's really, really important. There are two models for behavior. The Pharisees love the perks of power and someone said of them that their leadership was both gracelessness and greatnessism. <laughs> Jesus did not approve of this. And now we turn to the curses. <laughs> As we read them, we cannot help but think of the Beatitudes a few chapters previously. Blessed are you nine times 
over and over, and this is the exact opposite. There are seven woes. And remember that Jesus is speaking to his disciples and to the crowd. So even though the woes are directed to the Pharisees, we're to understand it as speaking a warning to the church. So in Matthew 23, verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you lock people out of the kingdom of heaven. For you yourselves do not go in, and when others are going in, you stop them. Okay, this, we can understand this curse because the leaders who were supposed to bring people closer to God opposed Jesus, who is the image of God, right in front of them. And they, of all people, should have recognized him. That they didn't is incredibly sad, but that they hindered others compounds the tragedy. Verse 15, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you cross sea and land to make a simple, single convert, and you make the new convert twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. We see this prophecy come to light during the time of Paul after Jesus' death, when there were Jews that were in different areas of the world who used to travel behind him to stir up riots against him wherever he went. Sometimes a student is worse than the teacher. Verse 16, woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the sanctuary is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the sanctuary is bound by the oath. You blind fools, fools, for which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? And you say, whoever swears by the altar is bound by nothing, but whoever swears by the gift that is on the altar is bound by the oath. How blind you are. For which is greater, the gift or the altar which makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and everything on it, and whoever swears by the sanctuary swears by it and by the one who dwells in it, and whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by the one who is seated upon it. What? Are you confused? Like you can swear on something and it be not, and like it's like this, putting your, crossing your fingers. But then you swear on another thing and you're bound. This is a curse on the tendency to twist the fine points of God's law into something beyond recognition. It sounds like a very lawyerly exercise to pick at minutia so that the ruling then makes no sense. Luther says of this woe that Jesus punished them with fearful words because they preached their own dreams and just let the word of God stand there. Hmm. How many modern religious leaders are doing just that? Verse 23, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint, dill, and, and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and faith and mercy. It is these you ought to have practiced without neglecting the others. You blind guides, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. The Pharisees were fantastic super tithers. Any church would be happy to have them because they tithe even down to the produce of their gardens, which is way above and beyond what is required. <clears throat> we need some of them kind of tithers here at ABC. 
We would be able to do so much more if every ABCer gave 10% or more of their income to the church. We need some sermons on tithing. We need a sermon series on tithing. <coughs> See what I did there? I focused on the wrong thing. So many big name ministries spend so much time talking about tithing that Christians are known for their tithing. And Jesus is saying that tithing is a minor point in living the Christian life. And to those who are saying, oh yes, I don't have to tithe, you should read it carefully because he does say, don't neglect it. But there are far, far more important kingdom matters to practice than tithing. And it's a good thing Jesus told us what they were immediately or we would have probably gone off in another wrong direction. He says they're justice, mercy, and faith. And let us remember that Old Testament justice is not an abstract ideal that is easy to rhapsodize about. Neither is it fairness in the court of law as we as our system is set up where two equal and neutral parties are both appealing their side. No, the point of Old Testament justice is the protection of the poor and powerless. So it's skewed in their favor. It really recognizes that the rich and powerful never come to the table equal and neutral because they own the table. The Old Testament Justice is always social. It has to do with our relationships with each other. So justice is protection for those who have suffered. And mercy is real love for the poor and for those who are really, really hard to love. Justice and mercy are boots on the ground. And some of that territory is really hard territory to walk. One commentator wrote, over 40 years ago that the failure of the conservative churches in this country is that they lack social justice organs and the failure of the liberal church is that they lack the milk of human kindness. The conservatives show disdain for the poor and the liberals show hatred for those conservatives who don't prioritize social justice. So both sides are condemned and a full-scale conversion to Jesus is required in both branches of the church. This was written decades ago. But that chasm has only grown. So this curse is definitely pertinent for today. Verse 25, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. Greed is also a word that is um, translated plunder, and it refers to economic sin. And self-indulgence is literally lack of self-control. It's usually used to describe sexual sin or physical sin. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also become clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside look beautiful, but inside they're full of the bones of the dead and of all kinds of filth. So you also on the outside look righteous to others, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Fake, fake, fake. 
If you try hard enough, you can look good. Anyone can look good. But putting your formal wear over your dirty body does not hide the smell, Jesus says. <laughs> These people don't look like they're sinning, but they're peddling death. Verse 29, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the graves of the righteous. And you say, if we had lived in the days of our ancestors, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. Thus you testify against yourselves that you are descendants of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your ancestors, you snakes, Ooh. you brood of vipers. How can you escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets, sages, and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and pursue from town to town, so that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, of Barakiah, from A to Z in our alphabet. That's not the Hebrew alphabet, but it works for us. You murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I tell you, all this will come upon this generation. And sadly, Jesus was talking to the very crowd who shortly later would call with one voice for his death. They would choose Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate, knowing that Jesus was innocent, he would wash his hand. He said, I am innocent of this man's blood. And the people as a whole answered those chilling words, his blood be upon us and upon our children. This is a selfie of Rachel Dolezal. She was a self-proclaimed biracial woman, a daughter of a black father and a white mother. She became the president of the Spokane, Washington chapter of the NAACP. She had been an activist for years, except that she wasn't black. It came out that she didn't have any black ancestry at all. Her father was white and she was passing as black. So she faked her identity for years. And it was a pretty big deal for a while. There was a lot of fallout, including loss of job and status. But that expose, which took months to sort out in the public eye, is nothing compared to the damage that a fake religious person can cause. Religious people who are faking are dangerous. Like all fakes, they look really good. They look like they're following all the rules, plus some. They don't look or act like sinners, but they have substituted habits or behavior patterns or structure for the living Messiah. They have confused activity with authenticity. There's no life in what they do. They take people down the wrong path with them when they're masked. And then when they're unmasked, those people fall because they've followed the wrong, wrong thing. Now you all have listened to a long sermon. So maybe, who said amen? Amen. <laughs> 
So we could be called religious people because not a lot of people would listen through that to get to the punchline. But the only reason to come to church is to beg the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus the Son and through the Son to be able to see the Father. We do a lot of good things at ABC. We do good things for each other, for the community, and for the world. But it doesn't mean a thing if the living God is not present here. It means nothing if we don't connect with God. It's just religion. And anyone can do religion. And religion is a dead thing without the living Messiah. Jesus means this as a warning to his church. How pertinent to the year 2021 how pertinent to ABC. This is a warning to all of us. Are you, and by you, let me be clear, I mean I too, are you faking it? Are you majoring in the minors? Are justice, mercy, and faith your priorities? Most important of all is Jesus, the living, loving Lord, really your center? Only you know what's on the inside. Well, you and God. Let's bow in prayer. We beg you, Lord, we beg you, Holy Spirit, to show us the Son so that through the Son we may see the Father. We beg for a touch of your garment even. We beg for a connection with you that we know we don't deserve, that we know we ignore often when you hold your hand out to us. But right now we're asking, we're begging for this connection with you so that we may know the living Messiah and so that in knowing you, we may be changed. Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. We meet in Altadena every Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific, both in the sanctuary and on YouTube. Most other events will be starting up soon. But if you need prayer now, please reach out to us at Prayer at AOL.com. And again, as always, we pray God's blessings on you this week.